Spread Great Ideas is meant to increase the signal in a world awash in noise. I'm your curator and host, Brian David Crane, and it is my quest to share the learnings of the world's most interesting people, the disruptors, the outliers, the libertines, and those who've been unconventionally successful so that we can become a little bit wiser together. Hello, everyone. I am James Swanick from The James Swanick Show, and this is... Brian David Crane. From, from show? Spread Great Ideas. There you go. We're actually co-hosting each other's podcast today. <laughs> so, Brian's <laughs> listeners are going, what the hell was that weird Australian voice who just <laughs> introduced me? <laughs> so, we are sitting in Ubud in Bali at the moment, Brian and I. We're sitting in Brian's... Uh, what do you call this place? It's like an office. It's an office. Yeah, so this is a proper office. <laughs> But, it, but it's really a villa. I mean, we're looking out of the window. It's about 4.07 in the afternoon, and there are paddy fields. I see a local Balinese man. There's what looks like palm trees. <laughs> you have this, this beautiful waterfall or fountain and, yeah, pool and pool here. I mean, it's kind of like a paradise kind of scene <laughs> we're in here at the moment. But let me introduce you to my listeners, and then you can introduce me to yours. I've kind of hijacked your, your Sweet, podcast please. already. Sweet, no, Yep. So, yeah, Brian David Crane, he's been a great mate of mine for probably about seven or eight years now, I think. And we met through um, a business mastermind group that we, uh, we are in. And uh, Brian likes to think of himself as an aspiring polymath, which is a, a word that I just discovered just, just before we hit record, actually. And that's someone who wants to be knowledgeable or is knowledgeable in multiple areas and not just a jack of all trades but someone who actually goes deep in those areas yeah is that and, right and that's why i said aspiring because i don't necessarily think i am i just ah. would like to be i see yeah well we'll let my listeners be the judge of that in a Sounds second good. <laughs> so so brian is actually very um knowledgeable in history philosophy ethics psychology digital marketing he's a he's a digital entrepreneur lifestyle design. Uh, he's 37. He's from a small town in Tennessee, uh, but now living between where we are now in Bali um, and a little bit in the States and, and a few months of the year in Europe as well. He's traveled to 40-something countries. He was a self-made millionaire by the age of 30 by launching e-commerce brands. Uh, he currently has a software company, a clothing company. His podcast, of course, if you're listening to his podcast now, is Spread Great Ideas. And... Uh, He's kind of like the character Red in the movie Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> He's kind of like the guy who knows how to get you things. You know the character played by Morgan Freeman in, in, in the prison? Morgan Freeman is always the go-to guy when people want to like sneak things into the prison. And uh, Tim... Is it Tim Robbins, the actor? What's yeah. his name? Tim Robbins goes up to him and goes, I hear, I hear you're a man who knows how to get things. And he ends up getting him a Rita Hayworth poster and like a little um, rock, uh, rock hammer and things like that. You're that guy to me. You are red. Because every time I come to Bali, I'm like, hey, I need a masseuse. You're like, yeah, go this guy. Hey, I need uh, some green juice. Yeah, go here. Hey, I need to find a gym. Yeah, here. Hey, I need to go to a naked sauna. <laughs> I don't like know I where did the one of those night. are. Yep. Um, and today we're going to just be having a friendly chat, talking about a whole lot of things to do with uh, lifestyle design, business. We'll throw in a little bit of controversy. We'll talk about Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, relationships probably a little bit. Relationships a little bit. And uh, I, I just couldn't be happier to be here in Bali with you, Brian, who's someone I've known for, like I said, seven or eight years. And uh, this is going to be really fun. So there's my introduction to you. That Are you going to intro me now? That was an amazing introduction. Yeah, it's going to be hard to follow on to that one. For, well, first and foremost, one of the reasons it's going to be hard to follow is because you were 
a sports center anchor on ESPN. So you're used to <laughs> presenting other people uh, and you certainly have the tone of voice and the animation to do it. That was, that was super impressive. Um, James nowadays has a couple businesses, both uh, centered around wellness and essentially making people feel better and be healthier. Um, one is around how to quit alcohol. It's called 30 day, no alcohol challenge. The other one is um, Swanee sleepwear. I think that name is correct. It's uh, sleep glasses and mm, other accessories that go along with ensuring somebody has a, a good night's sleep. Um, your journey into the States, you're originally born in Brisbane or outside of Brisbane in Australia, um, but have become a naturalized American citizen. Mm -hmm. uh, and the path through doing that um, took you, I think, to New York, to yes. LA, to Oklahoma City, to quite a few different places, um, and uh, uh, one does not want to get in the way of James Swanick when he focuses on a goal because he's very, <laughs> he's very like gonna 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 bust through walls and break through windows to get there. Um, and uh, I think the U.S. is better off for having you. And uh, um, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's funny that we I say that because as we're both somewhat like you said nomadic, but also somewhat expats because um, mm. you're an expat of Australia, but also somewhat of an expat of the States cause you're not in the States year round either. Mm. Um, and like you said, I, uh, um, I'm not necessarily in, uh, in the U S more than about three months out of the year. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And so while we've been here in Bali, like <clears throat> a couple of the things that we've touched on, I think people would find interesting. We talk a lot about relationships. Uh, James is looking to become a father. Um, Ubud in one sense is, uh, a living laboratory of relationships. One thing that I have noticed here is that I think if you picture um, AI and robots taking over uh, and giving us so much free time, Ubud is somewhat like that and that you have people who <laughs> sit around <laughs> with essentially no demands on their time, psychoanalyzing themselves and psychoanalyzing others and looking at their feelings and unpacking things left and right. And so in one sense, that's an amazing phenomenon, but in another, I think you tend to see that without a, a bit of purpose, uh, it can be very, um, it can, it can lead into like, just like a, a self-referential cycle that you never really break out of. I think you've met some yeah. people like that here as well. Yeah. Yeah. You go down a rabbit hole of, uh, it, it's almost like narcissism, I would yeah. call it become, because you become so self-obsessed that it's hard to get out of it. Yeah. And this, this environment here in, in Bali, and especially in, in Ubud, really fosters going inside and thinking about yourself. And, and I think also, um, you know, when you're not here and you're elsewhere, like in the States or Australia, wherever you are, you do tend to numb yourself with other, with other friends or Instagram or work, whereas here, the idea is to disconnect from that. Mm. And so when you do disconnect from that and, and you stop doing the things that you were doing back in your, your, your other life, there's just you and your thoughts. And then this community here fosters you, really fosters you being with your thoughts and going into workshops and um, uh, and, and not just thoughts, feelings as well, right? For like, sure. Um, so, which that's a beautiful thing. The, 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 the challenge with it is, is that it's wrapped in spiritual jargon and spiritual lingo, which makes it very hard to say stop. There's like no point at which you go, you're acting tyrannical or you're acting, you're, you're being narcissistic. And so you need to quit doing this. Mm. Um, because in some sense, if you are um, working on yourself 
or you are speaking your truth, or I'm trying to think of some of the phrases that I've heard here. How do you contradict that? How do like, and this is an open question to you is like, how do you say, um, okay, I've had enough of this, or you, let me, let me not make it self-referential. You've had enough of this and now you need to go out into the world um, and actually yeah. put into effect some of the stuff that you've learned. Yeah, because you can just be a, a knowledge junkie, can't you? Like going from workshop to workshop and, and thinking that you're always broken, that you're naturally broken and that you ha somehow have to fix yourself. Mm. Whereas I believe that none of us are really broken. We're mm. just who we are and we're looking at ways to make ourselves better. But a lot, mm. of, the, a lot of the teachings here I find kind of reinforce this idea like there's something wrong with you and yep. you need to and you need to fix it. And not only is there something wrong with you, but it's something that happened when you were a child and that you didn't have any control over it and so therefore it kind of perpetuates a victim mentality as well. Yeah. It's it um, can. It can do, yeah. I think it's too much of a generalization to say that it, that it's all like that. I mean two years ago I had a a bit of a meltdown existential midlife crisis, I guess you would call it. It was exactly two years ago now and um, stuff that I hadn't dealt with um, to do with my relationships with, with family, like my mother and father and my brother, former romantic relationships, um, decisions I'd made, choices I made, it all kind of came to a head. And in about the space of about eight weeks, I did uh, a pretty famous self-development program named Landmark Forum. So I did Landmark Forum, the, 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 which is the first level of it. Then I went straight into a, another self-development program Three days later, called ELC, uh, Elevate Leadership Community, and I did that in. Um, so I, sorry, I did Landmark in um, in New York City, and then I flew over to the West Coast and did ELC in uh, Irvine, California. Then I went and did the advanced version of Landmark in Los Angeles, and then literally on the graduation night, I got an Uber to back to Irvine to begin the advanced of the the ELC. next program of ELC the next day. So I was like deep in it and I was crying in front of people and doing these weird exercises where they're making me bang a pillow and they're, they're making me have fake conversations with my mother and father and and then um, um, you know it was it was brutal like it was brutal emotionally very draining um, and I have to say though that as draining as that was and it it was hugely beneficial for me, now I can say that two years later, because I did resolve childhood, quote-unquote, trauma. I did mm -hmm. in some areas. And it also opened me up to, to be not such a, I don't know if hard-ass is the word, or mm -hmm. um, uh, I guess I, was, I wasn't particularly empathetic. I'm more empathetic now, and that's still an ongoing challenge that I have. So I have to say that that, whole, that, that process was terrific and I also knew when to get out because mm. after those four seminars, mm. I remember I went to the Air One supermarket in Venice Beach the next day and I sat down. I was exhausted and drained but I felt amazing mm. and I was like, I'm not doing any self-development for like six months or a year and so that felt right. And you, what what led you into that? Was there – what what happened right before the, the start of this uh, – um, these four classes or these four seminars of – Four, four events. Yeah, well, I think um, I think there was stuff that I'd been suppressing and not dealing with most of my adult life. And then around that time, I ended a romantic relationship. And that was really the catalyst mm. for going into a to deep despair, I guess. Now, I, w I wouldn't say that I was... Maybe deep despair is an, an exaggeration. I wasn't... I didn't... 
in hindsight, I don't feel like I was suffering from depression. I just got very, very sad. Mm. And I started questioning all of my life choices. Like I should have married this woman back in late 1990s and I didn't. Now I've gone and traveled the world and been to 40 countries. And it was kind of like a sliding doors thing. What would my life have been? And I was 42 at the time. And so I was doubling 42 to make 84. And I was thinking, oh, I'm probably halfway through life. And all of a sudden you start getting existential. Who am I? What is the point of all this? What am I doing? And then the relationship breakup, even though it wasn't devastating, it was it was a relationship breakup, but yeah. I, nevertheless, I did entertain the idea of having children with this woman. That ending kind of like fueled the fire, so to speak, to then all of a sudden face all of my issues that I hadn't been dealing with for many years. Mm. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Yeah. 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 I've gone through dark, uh, dark nights of the soul. I mean- um, and I've done landmark, uh, not as much as you have. Mm. Um, and I, through a couple of the other self-development courses I'd done, um, source being the one that I remember the most, they do a lot of anger release therapy, which you talked about hitting pillows. Mm. Um, I, I still swear by that one. I, th- yeah. I don't know if it's the same modality, but, um, even here at my villa, uh, I, I put music on in the mornings, kind of rage music, um, Tool, Pantera, that sort of stuff, and get a pair of, um, <clears throat> I have a pair of like poles, metal poles, and get into the pool and just beat, like really get into like a sense of um, uh, that anger that kind of can 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 kind of stew and permeate. Um, and I, I notice it because some mornings I'll wake up and I'll be in a bit of a funk or it just, I don't know, like there, there, there'll, there'll be something off and I'll, I can, I, I know that I need to move it. So I, I will always be thankful, um, from, and the, the self-development that I did was called source and source seminars. And it was, it was intensive seven, 10 days, but the anger release therapy is one of the things they taught us there. And that was something that, um, I, I really adore. And it's actually something I wish more people did in uh bali or in ubud and the reason is is that i think there's 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 value in talk therapy uh there's value in exploring the emotional landscape but and there's also value in just physically getting stuff that is pent up out of you yeah and that especially maybe as as a guy uh it's more socially acceptable to do so but i've had friends come over and get in the pool and we put on music and just do it as well and it there's it's it's it, it it's very cathartic in a way that I think talk therapy can't be. Um, and um, yeah, I'd, I'd looked at buying a series of beanbags here and doing it at the villa, and then it didn't happen um, for a variety of reasons. But uh, yeah, I, I I've definitely I've definitely gone down those paths. And I think you touched on something earlier when at the end of the four self development workshops or, or or intensives that you'd done, you felt like you were done with it, and that's we have a mutual friend, Mark Manson, who's written about um, kind of self-help junkies versus, and it's not even really self-help junkies. It's it, it's somebody who's constantly doing these versus using self-help as almost like mm, you take your car to the mechanic, you get the car fixed, and then you go on and keep driving it, that you should look at it as much more like a mechanic and that you go in, you do some work on it, and the goal is not to keep going back to the mechanic all the time, right? That it's like you need to basically... You do the tune-up, you get fixed to whatever degree you need to so that the car keeps functioning, and then the car takes you where you need it to go, right? Mm. It shouldn't be consistently in the shop, always looking for, you know, whatever, pistons to be replaced, tires to be replaced, yeah. whatever, right? And 
Um, I'm, I'm blending a couple different uh, analogies there, but um, I do think that that's, that's something that I has been helpful for me as the anger therapy, but then also, and again, I'll tie it kind of just back into Bali briefly, um, which is that people who are living here for too long, I find I don't get a, along that well with them because um, they can, uh, it's almost like I get along better with people who come in are here for a couple weeks doing the tune up and then leave because they're, they're, they're kind of coming through with a purpose as opposed to saying the only reason that I'm here is because I'm broken and I need to fix myself Yeah, got it. in a, in a deeper way. Right. Yeah. Um, because, and there's something I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I have a couple friends here who are, who are, um, life coaches and, one of the big things with life coaches is this belief is is to try to attack limiting beliefs. And I was talking here in here in Bali. This is last year with a friend of mine who is a life coach and saying that she helps people with limiting beliefs. And I said, when do you ever decide that that person is fixed? Right? Like when does that person ever graduate from no longer needing to work on these limiting beliefs? And the answer was. I didn't really know what the answer was there. She didn't really have one. She was kind of like that. You, you know, like even me questioning whether or not there was an end to fixing limiting beliefs was a limiting belief. And I was like, but it's a bit of a sleight of hand because it's like, you never get out of this, Mm. this circle, right? It's like impossible to ever say, okay, cool. You got what you needed to. Now you need to go on with it. Right. Yeah. Um, And so one of the, one of the hacks that I've used when I've met people here. Um, and when it comes to them being life coaches, I tend to ask them like, what is the format by which you coach people? And the ones I had a friend of mine who said, I I say to somebody, you've got six sessions. They buy the six sessions. And at the end of six sessions, either I've helped you or I haven't, but you, that's, that's the amount of time you get with me. And I find that to be a much more honest way of dealing with people than, than, than much more where you get them into a coaching program that's seemingly never ending and that you, um, uh, you're convincing them that there's something deeply wrong with them consistently. And some people, there is some stuff that's consistently deeply wrong with them. But there, there's also it's it's it, the, the incentives are such that they don't ever want you to actually get out of mm-hmm. uh, being coached with them. And and that ties back. And I'll circle this back around to something you and I were talking about at dinner the other night, which is you and I have both signed up for coaching programs that. Uh, are either expensive or they're designed to have some negative penalties mm, <laughs> to yeah. get to get us to take action on yeah. things. Yeah, but we've both done it for for a period of time to hit a particular goal, and then we've stopped them. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just to specify that about in November of 2018, I enrolled in a program which which charged seventy five hundred dollars a month to be in to specifically design. Um, to help uh, online entrepreneurs like myself to design and sell high-ticket uh, programs, which I do. I, I, I designed a, um, a high-ticket program for my quit alcohol um, business. It's, not, it's, it's called Project 90, and it uh, helped about a, almost 100 people last year, and it cost thousands of dollars to do it. Now, I had that idea in my head for probably two years to build that program. Up until that point, I, I'd I just had this, you know, standard program, which was the 30-day no alcohol challenge. It's $67. You go online, you buy it, you get 30 videos, 67 bucks, you're done, right? And that had been very successful over the years. But I was, I had imagined this higher ticket. And by higher ticket, for the, those 
may be listening who don't know what that means. It just means like a a higher priced program, yeah. more intensive, more coaching, one on one. And so I launched this five thousand dollar program, and it did incredibly well last year in two thousand nineteen. And the reason that I built it and I did it was because I was paying the $7,500 a month. Now, truth be known, I don't think I learned that much from the $7,500 business mastermind that I was in. Not much more than what I already knew. Mm. But the fact that I was paying the $7,500 every month and I knew what day my credit card was going to get hit every month, it spurred me into action. And so I wrote a landing page. I I actually got a salesperson. I I got a coach. I built the damn thing. I started selling it, and a year and a bit later, it, I mean, y- y- I have to say it was wildly successful because yeah, it got me a massive on return on it, return on investment. I put in almost a hundred grand, and as it stands, you know, in two thousand nineteen, it made me almost half a million dollars in revenue back. So that's good. That's good. Odds, right? It's like yeah. five to one ROI. Yeah. But I and I could have done it on my own, but I hadn't. And just like you listening, you you could do it, but you haven't, so you can't <laughs> until maybe like you have something that drives you and spurs you into action. Yep. And for you, you had a penalty, right? I did have one. I had one at the end of the quarter, uh, the end of the fourth quarter, which was I had to donate a thousand dollars to a a politician that I really don't like, and that I had to publicly announce my support for that person. Um. And whatever I can tell, it was AOC um, who is uh, <laughs> explain who that is to our listeners. Yeah, AOC's a um, she's a junior congresswoman from uh, the Bronx or Queens. She's from somewhere in one of the boroughs in uh, New York. And um, in my opinion, strictly in my opinion, she's just the she's the quintessential knows everything, doesn't listen, very clever with sound bites, not particularly. Uh, well thought out or well thought of, but very good at social media and highly convinced that she's right and quite righteous in in that conviction. So anyways, that's a long way of saying you don't I, like I, don't, I don't particularly care for her. <laughs> I really didn't want to support her. Um, and uh, I made a bet with a group of friends that was if I didn't get a project launched, this podcast is part of that project, but if I didn't get the project launched by the end of the year, I had to donate to her and really do it publicly and say how much I liked her. And there was a whole script that was written. I was There was a point between Christmas and New Year's when I flew back here um, and got back to my office and just shut the phone down for like two days and just worked because I was like, I do not want to do this. And I needed that penalty to basically push me to get me to do the things because I've been thinking about doing this for yeah, a couple of years like you, you like you were with your high ticket coaching program, and um, it was an, it, it, I needed it. Yeah, I, I needed it, and I think I want to do another one for this first quarter because it's I it's almost like you talked about is that like I know that I need it to do it. Mm. Um, uh, even though like I can rationalize and be like, yeah, I didn't actually really need to make that bet to make myself move. But I hadn't moved yet, so therefore I needed the bet. So maybe I need to do another bet this quarter around some other stuff that I want to get done. And I don't know what that bet is, so don't put me on the spot. Because <laughs> um, I know you had said you're getting ready to sign back up for... I did, uh, yesterday. Okay. I enrolled in another program. Thankfully, it's a bit more cost-effective. It's 20, $2,400 a month. But I... <laughs> still, I still still spendy. It's still it's thirty grand a year. Yep. So I enrolled yesterday into another program specifically designed to help help me polish the existing program that did so well the, the you know last year mm-hmm. as a, as a, in its first 12 months so 
Um, I, I, and it's, it's so funny. As soon as they processed my credit card yesterday, I was like, right, I'm zoned in. I'm like looking at the content that was delivered to me. I'm ready to have my onboarding call. I'm now thinking about my program again, whereas the last couple of months I've been kind of, you know, I mean, I've been thinking about it, but not to the degree with as soon as that credit card was hit, I was like, mm. okay. And I've always say this, it's a catchy little phrase, but when you pay, you pay attention. For sure. Yep. And uh, yep. <laughs> likewise, and it's funny because human beings are either running towards pleasure mm. or reward or they're trying to avoid pain. Mm. And in your case with AOC, you're trying to avoid pain. Yep. And for me, I'm also trying to avoid pain. I'm trying to avoid the pain of mediocrity, yep. which is so it's the most painful thing for me yep. ever. Yep. I'm not sure what it says about my personality, but I, I, I mean, I'm sure no one likes to be mediocre, but I just have this absolute disdain for knowing what I could be and, and I'm not. Dude, there's, an, there's a famous quote from Jim Rohn, which is, we must all suffer from one of two pains, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. The difference is discipline weighs ounces while regret weighs tons. The difference is re- discipline weighs ounces while regret weighs tons. I love that quote, and it's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 I love that as well. And if you're listening, what... What regret do you have about something you haven't yet done, but you know you want to do it, but you just haven't done it yet? Send me a DM on my Instagram, which is at James Swanick, and send Brian. Where, where can Brian, where can your listeners send you something? Email me at uh, brian at spreadgreatideas.com. Yeah, email Brian at brian at spreadgreatideas.com. And just tell us, like, what's, what's a project or something in your life that you want to do? You know you can do it, but you haven't. Mm. And maybe by paying or... or uh, inflicting pain on you yeah. on yourself if you don't do it. it could be public shame that was part of it could you be know? public shame yeah i know that every month that credit card's getting hit 2400 bucks so i'm focusing yeah because i know i got to make the make more than 2400 dollars otherwise i'm just i'm in the red right i'm pissing the money. money away pissing the money away yeah yeah so yeah i'd love to hear from you send me a message or send brian a message and let me know let us know what uh you know what's a big project that's been playing on your mind it could be for months could be for years mm. And we can publicly shame you if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, the you 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 know Peter Schaller. He's got this whole project of um, uh, commit action, which is designed to take basically take the fight to procrastination. Yes. And part of the psychology of commit action is you're just paying someone to have a essentially like an accountability partner every week who calls you and says, James, did you do what you said you were going to do last yeah. week? And you say yes or no and whatever. But what's what I always found interesting about Peter's business, and I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time he was only hiring personal trainers because personal trainers were very good at basically always being able to kind of hold somebody's feet to the fire while still being pleasant and upbeat about it, right? They yeah. could basically be like, James, you haven't done your 50 pushups, but I believe you can. Right, that kind of dichotomy or that that balance between the two, because it's yeah, um, you need both, right? You need somebody to be like, you haven't done what you said you're going to do, and I still believe you can do it, because otherwise it becomes you start to avoid the person, right? If they always yeah. banging on you and you're never getting anywhere. And I found that I, I found that in my coaching programs around people helping people quit alcohol. Mm. Um, if in Project Ninety, for example, the high ticket program I was just referring to, there are different personalities right of client who who come into that and some mostly men love tough love mm. they they love tough love so i call them out on their bs i challenge them 
They might push back. I'll push back with them. And I, I give them tough love. Just speak to them directly. Like, But then when I've given tough love to um, to women in, in general, it hasn't been appreciated as much. Um, not all women. It's uh, But but what I've certainly found is that um, to get a positive response from that type of personality, it involves understanding and listening and being empathetic and putting yourself in their shoes and lovingly supporting them. And language is, you know, loving language and supportive language. And that tends to be more, um, get better results than giving that type of person the tough love. Mm. Um, it's kind of like know your audience, right? And it's in, in sales as well, like whether you're doing phone sales or digital marketing or you or or you're trying to charm a man or trying to charm a woman, depending on you know the circumstance, you have to know your audience and speak to them in a language that they understand. That's receptive, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a skill of yours, I think, that you, that I admire in you, is that I think you're a very good communicator and that you're very intentional in how you communicate and what you say. And I, it's something you've worked on as far as being more powerful and I, and I mean powerful with air quotes because it's not necessarily yelling at people. It's more how how do you get your message across and across to multiple like different types of people or different uh, um, different audiences, right? And is, is it something that you've studied? Yeah, um, people skills, um, NLP, mm. um, best book in my top three favorite books is um, Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. Um, and then, you know, those self-development programs as well, being empathetic and putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Thank you for the compliment. It's funny because I, I do consider myself to be, to be I'll, I'll accept the compliment and agree with you most of the time, but I will say this, I'm horrendous at it and horrible with it with my own family. Okay. It's like my brother, who's my, my business partner in the Swanick Sleep business, he and I trigger each other all the time. And it doesn't matter how much self-development he does and how much self-development I do and how much self-development we've done together. I may as well be speaking Mandarin to him and he may as well be speaking, I don't know, China, like Swedish, you know, yeah. I don't know some foreign language <laughs> to me. You know, like it's, it, 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 it's extraordinary. So mm-hmm. some people I have found, I just, no matter how hard I try and even though I logically know how to communicate to that person... I still want to actually say to them, go f- f- yourself. And, yeah. You know, um, in fact, I remember just to give Painter an example of that. I remember um, having an argument with my brother on a, on a video, fa- on a FaceTime call about 18 months ago. And he's calling me like a C word and I'm calling <laughs> him an F and C word and blah, blah, blah. And then there's a knock on the door and it's... <laughs> And it's my um, assistant who's lovely and she she comes in and I go, oh, hi, Sarah, how are you? So good to see you. Great, I'll just be a second. So, I put on this charm offensive with her. She said, can you just wait in the next room for a second? She goes in the next room and I come back onto the call and say, you're a You know what I mean? So, it's like it, I'm, I'm a bit of a hypocrite in that sense. <laughs> I don't – I mean – there's a phrase my grandmother always said, which is, the good Lord gives us family so we learn how to tolerate people we wouldn't choose to associate with. <laughs> <laughs> the good Lord gives us family so we learn how to tolerate people we wouldn't choose to associate with. Yeah. I think that <clears throat> I, 
Yeah, that, you know, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in the spiritual community. There's Ram Das, who's always said he's he's quite famous in in spiritual circles of if you think you're enlightened, go spend <laughs> go spend a week with your family, <laughs> you know, because I mean, it tests you. It really it pulls it tests. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You feeling zen? Go for it. You know? Yeah, go go step in there. Go talk to your brother. Go talk to your sister. Go talk to your parents. Yeah. The funny thing is, is that I when when someone who is coming across as being all spiritual and 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 good and pure and peace and you know those those type of people, you mm. know, who live that and embody that, I wish that I could just believe them. Mm. But I'm all. But my BS factor or BS radar starts to kick in and I wish it didn't because I just want to I just want to be open and loving and supportive but I must concede that I'm 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 skeptical because as much as I as I get praised by others and as much as I feel like I have done immense self-development work and I and I do walk the walk and talk the talk there are still times like we were talking about with family yeah where it just falls apart and I do the exact opposite so I kind of when someone's standing in front of me and telling me and almost like lecturing me with their what I consider to be like pompous holier and, than thou holier than thou pure kind of you know whatever it is that they're talking about I do get I do get skeptical. I'll give you one example. I was in Byron Bay which is a um kind of like the Ubud Bali equivalent in Australia on the east coast of Australia about 2 hours south of Brisbane in northern New South Wales. Chris Hemsworth, the Hollywood actor, lives there just for context, um, has a beachfront home there. And I went to this really woo-woo Byron Bay party like on a Tuesday night over at someone's house. There were probably about 25, 30 people there. And I walked in and this woman who I've never met before, she was probably late 20s, opens the door. And she's like, oh my God, hello. It's so <laughs> lovely to meet you. And she's like, and she goes to give me this big hug. And I've never met this woman before in my entire life. And so I, I hug her and she holds me for like five, seven seconds. That's a long time. When you don't for know someone. Yeah, yeah. When you don't know someone and she's like, as she's holding me, she's like, mm. <laughs> mm. Right? Complete stranger. Dude, Complete stranger. There's so much spiritual virtue signaling. This, that's what I call that, spiritual virtue signaling, right? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Keep, keep continue with the story. I didn't mean to cut you off. So I walked in, and most people were like this, which yeah. is fine. That's the that's the culture, and you know. And I've done that before. I've hugged, but not not for five seconds, and done a big, mm, you know. Anyway, about an hour and a half later, I'm in the kitchen with this woman, the woman who hugged me, and she was presenting herself as like as like this happiest person. Nothing could nothing could. You know, knock her off her perch. She was just, she'd done so much self development work. She'd done all of the pure stuff. She's, she does uh, the breath work. She does the yoga. She's in Byron Bay. She eats well and all this kind of, lots of things to admire. Like, really, lots of things to admire about this woman. And at the same time, I asked her this, what I thought was a seemingly innocuous question. And I said, Oh, so what does, what does upset you? Like, on those rare times where you are upset, what, uh, what, what, what or who, who triggers you? And her whole face just went white. It just, her whole demeanor changed. Because the wall was breaking. Completely broke. Yeah. And I looked at her, I didn't say anything. I was like, did I say, I was like questioning myself, did I say something offensive? I wasn't sure. She said, uh, probably, I have a 
situation with my mother. I have a bit of a weird relationship with my mother. And then she started to speak like that. Like, so she went from like this joyous nine out of 10 high energy. I'm spiritually, I'm a spiritual master. Yeah. To in the space of 10 seconds, right in front of me, I perceived her to just be like crumbling at just the question that I asked her and, and her thinking about her mother and his, her relationship with her mother. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't bring like, to, I'm sorry. I, I seemingly up, upset you. And uh, she was like, oh, it's okay. And we spoke for another like two or three minutes. And then she exited the conversation, but with her like shoulders forward and almost like she was, she was broken. Uh. It seemed to me like she was broken. Now, I share the story for two reasons. One, I don't like, it kind of, <laughs> it kind of, it felt bad. It, it felt good and it felt bad. I'll tell you why. It felt bad for me because this woman was such such in high spirits and now she wasn't. And it felt good in an egotistical kind of way for me because it confirmed my suspicion. Yeah, the theory. That she really wasn't as as happy and connected and spiritual and, and as possible. And I even now verbalizing this story back to you, I don't like it about my personality that in the moment I did get a level of satisfaction at, at you know, kind of subconsciously calling her out on her, on, on her, her BS. Mm. And then also I get, it fuels my ego to know that my suspicion was, was mm. correct. Mm. And I don't like that about my own personality. So I'm constantly in the inquiry in that as to why I got satisfaction from it and why I feel the need to be skeptical and why I can't just like observe and everything's fine and I'm just open and loving the whole time. Any thoughts on that? Mm, I think on this, the skepticism part is, to me, it's understandable because implicit in her behavior is she's saying that she's somehow better than you. That's implicit. She might not explicitly say it, but it's implicit in how she's carrying herself um, and, and her languaging and the, the long hug and this sort of stuff. And obviously, this is my own biases, but so that's implicit there. And so, when you find out that that's actually not justified, that's quite redemptive in a way, in my opinion. And then the second thing, which I think is kind of a deeper thread, is maybe the um, um I think there's skepticism around. I, I'm skeptical around people who always claim to be happy because I just find it to be. Um, I just, I find that, I don't know, like that the range of emotions that people, the, the healthiest people that I know are ones who uh, have essentially made peace with their darkness, who know it, understand it, um, can dance with it in a way that is healthy, let's say, um, and that don't let it consume them, but also don't pretend that it's not there, right? And so some of the... Um, when I come across people, maybe like this woman that you're, that you're describing, um, it's, I don't know, there's like a tendency to want to say, does this person actually know their shadow? Right. Or, and not only do they know it, but are they, um, have they, have they integrated it into their larger being? Right. Um, and when they haven't, uh, there, I think there's a, part of you and maybe a, and a part of me as well, which is like, kind of like wants to poke at that and say, this is something that you yeah. need to work on, right? Like this is not a healthy, you're, 
because if you're going to present yourself as knowing more or being better than someone else, like you need to make sure you have your, your house in perfect order. And that actually I'm paraphrasing because that's a line from uh, uh, Jordan Peterson's book, 12 rules, which I think the sixth one is make sure your house is in perfect order before you criticize the world. Make sure your house is in perfect order before you criticize the world. And so that tendency to to implicitly want to criticize the world, to impl- implicitly want to criticize you because you're not as happy as this person or whatnot, um, uh, and then you 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 start testing them and be like, okay, is your house actually in perfect order? Is your house actually in perfect order? And and a lot of times it's not, right? And that's yeah. So you seem you seem to be saying that that me asking that question of that woman was justified. Yeah, I do think it was. Yeah, yeah. and it I wasn't would... malicious. Your question? No, it wasn't malicious. Yeah. But I, I, but I do judge myself for the the satisfaction that I got from my suspicion being confirmed, and so that's like what in, I in just, watching her downfall. It, it, seeing her, what seeing her downfall, like I said, like I, I was trying to articulate before was, I felt bad, and I felt love for her, and at the same time, my ego was telling me. It feels good to see her like that because it fed my own ego because mm. my suspicion was correct. So, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I struggle with it because I, I, uh, you know, I wear a, a bracelet around my left wrist. That's a, my intention bracelet and it says powerful, but I used to have one that said love. And so, it, it's a reminder. I look at this word at the moment, it says powerful. And I'm like, I'm a powerful man. And I, re- I remind myself of that every day. And I'm an open man and I remind myself of that every day. And I'm a loving man and I remind myself of that every day. And yet my actions sometimes during the day... Don't square are, with that. Don't square with that. It's like my intent is to be powerful, open and loving. And I think that I, and I feel like I'm that way probably 80%, 90 maybe even 90% of the time. But it's the 10 to 20% of the time that I still haven't mastered yet. Eradicated. But I think the distinction in what you just said right there is initially when you were looking at the bracelet, you said, I am a powerful man. And then you rephrased it slightly and said, I aspire to be a powerful man. Mm. And maybe this, the rephrase is actually more, um, I think it's, I think it's more forgiving in a way, right? It also is more accurate because this is what you aspire to be. And, and if you, I think if you don't affirm the truth, uh, it's a very quick road to delusion, mm. like deep delusion. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. and that's part of, we can talk about the secret and some of this stuff of like, you know, people say like, I, I you know, I'm, they, they sit there and they basically, and I'm not accusing you of this, but they say I'm a millionaire and then, you know, they're not. And, but they, they, they affirm it and they have this belief of if they embody that affirmation and feel it, that it will then come. And it's, there's something I think deeply troubling about that psychologically because it's not actually true. You're like telling yourself something that's not a hundred percent true consistently. So by saying I aspire to be loving or I aspire to be open or I aspire to be powerful, um, that, that has, that, that, that resonates more with me. Mm. Yeah. 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 Then there's the, the, the school of thought that, it's your way of being. So be powerful, be open, be loving, remove the aspiring to and just have your way of being always be, in this example, powerful, open, loving. 
There's no aspiring to anything. It's kind of like people who say, I take responsibility. I'm like, no, don't take responsibility. Be responsible. Mm. There's a difference. People say, I take responsibility for my mistake. No, you're responsible. Whereas take, taking responsibility means you're kind of like reaching outside of yourself. To grab something. To grab something and bring it in as opposed to your way of being is you're responsible. Mm. I like that. Yeah. I th- I mean, I like that. I I don't have much more to add. I, yeah. <laughs> I like. I. I. I think. I think. I think you're responsible. That's. That's something that, actually, reminds me of a mentor of both of ours, which is Ty. Um, who Ty Lopez. Ty Lopez. He always had a phrase, which was, he said, "Everything is your fault." That was his. Yeah. Um, his big one, and he would say uh, he might have changed how he says that now, but that was a big theme when I was around him six, seven years ago of uh, everything is your fault. That would be on his billboard as one piece of advice that he wanted out in the world. And I think the be responsible is... That's right. Yeah. 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 It's another manifestation of that. Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a famous social media influencer, he his version is similar. He's like, he, he says that he lives his life like he is responsible for everything. The clouds in the sky mm. today, he's responsible for. And so when, he, when he's doing it on that level... Every little micro thing that's happening in his day, he's responsible for that. He it, it, he feels powerful because of it, right? So if he doesn't, if he's not hitting a revenue target in his company, and it was because someone in his staff messed up, he's still responsible because he hired the person in the company, right? The fires that have been going on in Australia recently, yeah, devastating fires in my native country of Australia. I've been you trying to use that Gary Vaynerchuk thing and feel responsible for the fires. Like I am responsible for the fires. Now I didn't light the flame, but I could have done like I I could have done more to ensure that there were um that Australia wasn't as dry as it was, that there were things in place to prevent people from lighting matches. I could have um donated uh, ahead of time to the fire service um, people, but not waiting for uh, a disaster to happen. I could have just proactively donated to the fire services in Australia so they were better manned and better equipped and who who then could have put these fires out on day one versus like two months that have been going on as we're recording this. So that's what I mean by like being a hundred percent responsible, mm. not just for your life, but for actually what it, what, everything else that's going on mm. in your life. In the recent news, there was the Iran issue where, you know, Iran sent missiles and destroyed um, or damaged some US military bases in, in Iraq. I was thinking this morning, like, how am I responsible for that? And do you want to have a go at figuring out sure, yeah. how, I, how I might be responsible? I have no idea. You have I'm no curious. idea? Yeah. Um, well, I'm responsible because I am a, even if I wasn't a US citizen, but I am a US citizen. So I could have lobbied or done more on my social media or created an organization promoting peace in the world. I could have been more interested in politics. I could have somehow infiltrated the US political system and made a difference to affect, you know, US um, foreign policy. Um, I could have, you know, created a, a kumbaya circle with a whole bunch of strategic people who are, who are in that region and fostered peace. Like, there's all these things I could have done, right? And, and as 
unlikely as those things seem, yeah. because I was born in Australia, I was raised an Australian citizen, and it was only recently I became a naturalized U.S. citizen. As 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 unlikely as it seems that I could have influenced U.S. policy overseas, I could have. Like I I, I could have, and that's where being a hundred percent responsible comes in for me. I am responsible for the choices I make. If I buy something with plastic, if I buy a plastic container versus a glass container, then I feel then I am responsible for the 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 for climate change, for example, right? Like you can play this game in an intricate way and going down a rabbit hole in infinity. But I like to think like that because then when things are happening in my own life, it brings me back to I'm responsible for everything, for everything that I'm generating right now. By the look on your face, you disagree. Well, I got a couple thoughts. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that um, mm, the, uh, the, the one thought that comes to mind is that when you take responsibility for things like the fires in Australia or things like uh, the um, what Iran is doing in Iraq – I, I, and and then you actually don't do anything about them. What, what the, the the dangerous part there to me is that it sort of it allows a muscle to atrophy, which is that you actually can influence things, not just take responsibility for them, but can influence things that are very close around you that are within your sphere of influence. So when you take a meta issue like the fires in Australia, it's it's so far outside of your uh, ability to affect. You could argue that, yes, you could have donated to the fire services. Yes, you could go back and um, and maybe become a volunteer firefighter so that in the future this doesn't happen again or something. But they're, they're, they're so far removed from your day-to-day uh, um, choices that I think that the more empowering way to approach it is more what you said at the tail end, which is that like, did you choose to buy a bottle that was made from plastic or made from glass? Let's say, right. That's much more within inside the realm or the sphere of things that you can influence than these sort of meta, um, uh, catastrophes or tragedies in the world. And the reason I take issue with it is that like, when you measure yourself against these meta catastrophes and, 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 and things happening in the world, it winds up almost becoming debilitating because you you don't actually do anything about them, right? Like you don't anything, do anything about Iraq and Iran. You don't do anything about the fires in Australia. So therefore, it kind of creates a narrative in your mind of that one side says I could affect change anywhere on the planet. And the other side says I'm not doing anything about these things that I'm measuring against. So it's much healthier to actually say I should measure myself if I'm taking action with inside of this area in which I can actually have some kind of influence. Because if you're not, that's, otherwise you become debilitated effectively, right? Like you just, you, you basically go like, well, it's all hopeless. Like, I mean, I, you know, I just, I don't have the power to really, like you, you, you believe that you have the power to act and then you don't, and then you become self-referential in a very negative way and think, um, like I could, I didn't, what's wrong with me? The world's going to shit, right? I think, I think the greatest line in musical, the greatest lyric in musical history, well, actually, that's an exaggeration. An outstanding line, an outstand, oh, let me start again. An outstanding lyric in a song is Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror. 
And it's very simple. It's been used over and over and over again. If you want to make the world a better place, you've got to look, in the, um, look at yourself and make the change. Right? I don't even think he wrote that song. I think it was R. Kelly. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Like really? R. Kelly, I think, I think, well, maybe it was another song, but R. Kelly and Michael Jackson, two, you know, uh, musical geniuses who were both being accused of, of essentially pedophilia. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think it was, I was watching Surviving R. Kelly, and I know he wrote one of Michael Jackson's songs, the Hits. lyrics for it, and yeah. I think it was Man in the Mirror. I might be wrong. I'm sure a simple Google search will answer it. If you know the answer, send me a DM to my Instagram right now and tell me I'm either James, you are completely wrong. Shut the hell up. Or James, you nailed it. Well done. But anyway, coming back to the point, like if you want to make the world a better place, you've got to look at yourself and make the change. And so therefore, not to disagree with your disagreement of what I said, but doesn't that mean that I can influence U.S. national policy by making the change myself. Like I could have done stuff within my sphere, which then if more people in that sphere kind of do more things, it somehow trickles to the White House and, and trickles to, you know, international policy. But you can't control those other people. That's, 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 that's the rub is that you, you can argue that you should think globally, but act locally. Mm. That's the rub. Think globally, act locally. But isn't that, act, isn't that acting globally by thinking locally? No, 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 act locally. Sorry, but yeah. isn't acting locally, doesn't that have the potential to affect change? What was it? Was Possibly, it? at a global level. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. yeah. But you're not hinging your outcome on it being uh, um, uh, like at a global level. You're just saying like, I, th- I don't want to drink things out of a plastic bottle, so I'm going to stop doing it. Got it. Yeah. And hopefully... We figure out what to do about the plastic in the oceans, um, but the the change that I can affect is simply I'm not going to drink things out of a um, out of a plastic uh, out of a plastic bottle. And and and, and as opposed to kind of like bemoaning the situation in the oceans, bemoaning the fact that um, uh, that people throw trash away and don't recycle or whatnot, like it's super easy to sort of go into odierism. Um, and and lose that momentum to act locally. That's 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 kind of my meta point. Got it. Yeah, I actually found out while you were saying there. I just googled it, and R. Kelly did not write that song, but he did write um, uh, "You Are Not Alone" from Michael Jackson. By Michael Jackson. Okay. Yeah. So I, I I got that wrong. So yeah, he wrote "You Are Not Alone." Yeah. Yeah. Shall we um? Shall we talk about Trump? <laughs> Let's talk about <laughs> President Donald Trump. <laughs> For my um, sure. American listeners and Australian listeners, let's try and go controversial. I mean, just the fact that we're even going to talk about it will be will, will trigger some people. <laughs> Enthusiastically, we can talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah. How are you going to get triggered from a podcast? <laughs> so uh, let me kick it off. What do you think of Trump? I like a lot of the things he's doing. There's some things I don't like that he's done, and I think that uh, by and large. It's been interesting the fact that he has not been able to uh, change the trajectory of things like the national debt, things like the size of the federal government, which he arguably was elected to do. That was part of his meta goal of, I'm going to drain the swamp and we're going to build this wall, right? And on both of those um, metrics, he hasn't He's one man, but he hasn't really been able to effectively drain the swamp. There's 
the federal government is as large, if not larger, uh, nowadays than it was four years ago. Uh, and very little of the wall has actually been built. He's tried. I'm not critiquing him for the effort. I just think that it's symptomatic of how deep uh, some of the power structures are that are fighting against him in a way. Mm. So what, do you, what do you think? It's interesting how you answered that. Um, well, I think I think he is a genius marketer. I think he's the right now when it comes to marketing. I think he's the world's greatest marketer. Um, and I love the story of Trump. I was saying this to you at dinner at dinner the other night, and people in my circle because I live in Venice Beach. I'm here in Bali. Like I, I like very left wing. Very 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 left wing. The fact that I say that I love the story of Trump as opposed to I love Trump, like I love the marketing machine and I, and I speak about it with a smile on my face, I, I get um, horrendous reactions from people. Like how can you possibly, possibly admire anything about that man? And the, and the Almost inference- like it's a cancer cell. Yeah. The yeah. inference is that I'm, I am someone of poor moral fiber that I could find anything redeeming about, about him. Now, I was talking the other night. I, I didn't grow up in, in the U.S. I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. I've been there um, as either a green, heart, green card holder or, or a citizen for 15 years, 14, 15 years. So I'm not as well-versed in American politics as you, you might be. You grew up in Tennessee, right? Yeah. And that, is that a, that's a left-wing or a right-wing state? Right-wing. Oh, it's right-wing. Yeah. Um, but I, I, one of the games I played in 2018 was I had the, the CNN – app on the left side of my screen and I had the Fox News app on the right side of my home screen to represent CNN left and Fox News right. And for, the, for all of 2018, I almost obsessively would read the same stories on CNN as, as Fox News just to monitor and kind of to, 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 to fuel my own curiosity on the ridiculousness of the media in some cases yep. and the ridiculousness of partisan politics yep. and it was shocking I have to say it was shocking to see how left CNN was and it was shocking to see how right Fox News was and I was always trying to find the, the truth and I tried the Wall Street Journal which was pretty which I, I think was pretty close to it it's pretty, pretty much straight down the line I couldn't read the New York Times because it was too far left um, the Washington Post I couldn't read that it was way too far too far left and then I, I, I tried to watch the Fox News presenters and then listen to people like Rush um, Limbaugh. Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and stuff like that. And it was, it was like too far right. But it was entertaining as hell. Mm. Like I loved it. And it was, it was like a soap opera. Like Game of Thrones was the big TV series of the last seven years, right? Which, which last year in 2019 finally ended. And that just captured the world's attention. US politics is better than any Game of Thrones storyline. So when I light up at the at the at the name of Trump, I'm lighting up at the soap opera of how it triggers people, how it triggers my left leaning friends, how it how my right leaning friends get really behind him, how people get agitated and irritated and frustrated and accusatory and and combative. I actually really really enjoy enjoy that. Mm. Um, you made a point when we were at dinner because some of the people that you've come across recently, they talk about uh, some of the immigration policies in the States and they 
are, I would argue, de facto in favor of open borders. Um, and they're appalled at what's happening at the border with um, immigrants from Central America and the separation of, uh, of kids from their families and whatnot. And when you had talked about that, you couldn't really disagree with them, even though you had gone through the process of doing the paperwork, paying for lawyers, X, Y, Z. I mean, I don't know all the paperwork that goes into getting a, um, get it, becoming a naturalized U.S. citizen, but mm. for sure it's expensive and challenging and you had to wait in line and follow certain rules. Mm -hmm. um, and you, Seven years. I had to wait seven years. Seven years well, for it was, that. It was two years to get a green card and then another five years to get um, become a naturalized citizen. And at the time, I spent $7,000 to a lawyer to go through the process. I think it's like double or three times that now, but this was 2000 and late 2000s. So, yeah. And jump through hoops and paperwork and, you know, go meetings. through a background check, go through, yeah. I mean, all these. And, and the, so some, somewhat of the, what was upsetting to me was some of the arrogance of somebody looking you in the face and saying that you have a, that you're ignorant in some form or fashion for supporting Trump or finding the story fascinating. Um, uh, and then also almost belittling the amount of time and energy it took for you to become a U.S. citizen. Because in one sense, they're looking at you and being like, you're a sucker. You should have never spent the time and energy to get this, uh, to become a U.S. citizen. Because in my mind, what you did was a waste of time because I support policies over here that say these people who don't do the things that you've done deserve to basically get in front of you in this line and that your efforts are moot, that they shouldn't really matter, right? Mm. And I think that's a really, I th to me, I think it's a really bad message. I mean, I, I've had, I grew up, I grew up in Tennessee, but I, I had a lot of friends who were either naturalized American citizens or they were, you know, they were, they were on green cards, this kind of thing. Um, and the amount of time and energy to get it done, it's no joke, right? Like it's, it's, it's a real process to go through. And um, personally, from a political level, I wish the U.S. had many more legal immigrants and was much more in favor of bringing in many more people. We need, we need a lot of people to compete with the likes of uh, China and India. But the same time, or maybe a precursor to that, is you have to deal with the, the problem of illegal immigration in the States because illegal immigration in the States is implicitly saying we have a group of people who don't follow any of the rules. So you, and this is true, especially in California, where you know, if you don't wear a seatbelt, it's a $250 fine. If you, don't, uh, if you don't recycle or if you don't throw something away or you walk on the beach with your dog or your dog poos in somewhere where it's not supposed to, there's fines and regulations for every single thing. As a, as a U.S. citizen or as a California resident, you are on the hook for those things if you have any money. But if you're here illegally, we don't care about any of those things. And we're not going to prosecute you for them, and we're going to look the other way, right? It's like such a double standard and a really nefarious, like a really bad double standard because it basically sets the context of the people who have money are going to get hosed by the states by the state, in particular California, and the ones who don't, we're going to almost treat them like, as if they're noble savages. We're going to treat them as if they've like they've they've somehow sacrificed all of this, and that it's noble. Um, and the noble savage myth is like such a pervasive one. It's part of the reason why these like homeless people they don't want to move them out of L.A. or San Francisco is because they treat them like they're noble savages, and it goes into this like you know there, there there's reasons why people don't want. 
to be living next to homeless encampments, right? They don't want to see people pooping on the street. They don't want to see them shooting up drugs. Um, and if you have kids or you have a family or you have somebody you care about, and you don't want them walking by these people. And yet you can't in polite company nowadays, basically say like, this is a problem and these people shouldn't be here. Right. Um, and Trump for better or worse, man, he says the stuff that everyone thinks and doesn't want to say publicly, right? He gets, he goes right out there. He puts it out in very crude and blunt language. But a lot of times people are like, finally, somebody said this thing, right? Like the whole, and, and that's what I think is so redemptive about him. In some senses, people go, this guy talks like I talk. This guy thinks what I think. And he's not ashamed of it. And he's tired of being belittled and bullied about it. Well, Somewhere between 49 and 51% of the U.S. population feels that way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but then 49 to 51% of the population feels the exact opposite. I don't know if they feel that... I think, like, Trump is not as... I don't think he's so bipolar, like, love-hate. I think there's a lot of gray in between. What I think... In my opinion, what is what 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 I see is that like he, at the at at like the at the ends, he's like very much a lightning rod. When you have somebody who really likes him, they are deeply passionate about him. When you have somebody who dislikes him, they are deeply dissatisfied with him. But then you meet a lot of people in the middle who are they like some things he does, they like they dislike some other things, and um, he's not quite as polarizing. But I think in circles where when he's and this is one of the reasons that I actually like being outside the States is that you're not inundated with politics. It doesn't touch every single thing. It doesn't come up in every conversation. And you had said this mm. sometimes in Venice is that literally you'll be out with friends, you'll be having a great time and then they'll bring up politics. And it's like, it's always kind of beneath the surface. It's always this sort of third rail that is looming. And when I go back a lot of times, you know, there's TV screens everywhere. There's news like constantly. It's kind of infor infotainment news, you know, like in the gym, whatnot. There's just constant to, like pushed at you. Um, and I think it that helps contribute to the polarization, honestly, is because like people are constantly fed it, right? Like, are you for or against? Are you for or against? Black, white, red, blue. Which team are you on, right? Khaleesi or Jon Snow? <laughs> I don't know who those Game people are. Reference. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I should know that, but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> are you for, are you for the North or are you for King's Landing? Game of Thrones fans it's, will know what that means. It's binary, right? It's reductionist and it's binary, and that's a really bad way uh, to like being reductionist and being binary in general is kind of a rough way to get through difficult problems because it doesn't give you a lot of flexibility to say there's extenuating circumstances, maybe 20% here, 30% there. Um, and you had talked about one of the things you like about Trump is that he always closes his remarks with, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. That's what he's famous for, right? Yeah. 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 So he never, he never, he doesn't seem to ever guarantee anything. He kind of is like, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. But, but you know, we'll see what happens. Yep. I've noticed that a lot. He said that about Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader. He's like, yeah, he likes me. I like him. You know, we're signing this peace treaty. We're working towards peace. But who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? You know, we'll see what happens. And it gives him room to run then, room, room to negotiate. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think so. But I guess um, the, the fact that you and I can have this conversation, like I don't, like I am not emotionally invested in Trump or yeah. or... Obama or Bernie Sanders or whatever. Like I'm, I'm just not emotionally invested in it, even though I am a naturalized citizen. But I am invested in the story 
of how how partisan it is and like mm. how black and white it is. It's just such a fascinating study of human nature, mm. I think. That's what I find fascinating. And so Yeah, but do you see the same amount of polarization in Australia? No. Okay. No. And in Australia growing up, people hardly even talked about their politics. In fact, I remember when I first moved to Los Angeles in 2002, at the end of 2002, I was at a party and I was shocked that everyone at the party was all just like, ah, oh, F Bush and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, whoa, people are talking about politics here. That's so, excuse me, that's so peculiar. And so the first nine or 10, 11 months I was in LA, it was just all left Democrat talking. And it was so surprising that people even shared their politics. And then I remember- you shared it on the first date, let's say, right, like yeah. right out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. And then I remember later on that year, I got sent out to um, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, to the world's largest machine gun festival at a mm -hmm. place called Knob Creek. And yeah. I was a journalist at the time for a British magazine named Loaded Magazine. And they sent me out there to go and do a two-day story on what it was like to be at a, at a machine gun festival. And I remember walking in there and everyone was wearing Bush Cheney shirts and caps and, and things like that. And, and I'll never forget this woman um, who was there. Um, I, I, she was like kind of like supervising this machine gun that I was about to, about to fire at a, at a disused um, truck or car that was in the, on yeah. the field. Filled with Tannerite, ready to blow up. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, when do, when do I do this? She goes, oh, we've just got to wait for those Orientals over there to finish. <laughs> there were a couple of eight, like Regions. Asian people over there. Yeah. I was like, Orientals? That sounds really racist. Yeah. And it was like, whoa, I'm like in the complete opposite of where I was, was at the time in Hermosa Beach, California. Yeah. In LA, I'm like, I'm not in, I'm not in, what is it? Not in uh, what? Where is it anymore? What's the uh, sign from the Wizard of Oz? Kansas. I'm not, not in Kansas, Kansas anymore. anymore. Yeah, and that was like a just incredible that for eight nine months I'd been in the blue state of California, and then mm. for two days I was in this red state where people were like Bush Cheney and describing Asians as Orientals. Mm. That was mm. when I really realized that America is just it's it's like the coastline mm. or, or left leaning Democrat thinking, and then there's yep. everything in the middle, which yeah. is the flyover country. Yeah, yeah. As it's disparagingly called, yeah. As it's disparagingly yeah, called. Yeah, it's not like that's a loving term for this area. It's no. like, no, it's just, the, it's just the distance we need to travel over so we get back and forth between LA, New York, and San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. But what I find interesting about you, Brian, is that you, that you would you just, I mean, if you care to share sure. what your political leaning leanings are, I don't think you're either left or right. You, you described yourself as... A, I'm, as li I'm libertarian. Libertarian. Yeah, that would so be. So, could you explain what... A libertarian is or believes? Yeah. So effectively, when I say libertarian, what I mean is that um, economically, I'm uh, I'm a capitalist. Um, I believe in free markets and free people. And then socially, uh, I'm quite liberal. I'm effectively like a classic liberal. So and when I say socially, I'm liberal. It means that I don't want the state um, telling you what you can and can't put into your body, who you can and can't associate with. Um, what you can and cannot say, those sort of things. Like I effectively say that state power should not be used for those things. We shouldn't have a drug war. We shouldn't have um, mm, like the, the, effectively like the, 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 like your body is your own personal sovereignty and what you do with it is up to you. Now you have that right in my opinion and along with it comes quite a bit of responsibility which is you need to take responsibility for what happens or you need to be responsible for what happens to your body if you decide to do heroin if you decide to do cocaine like there's going to be consequences and you you need to be willing to bear the consequences of those of those decisions um 
but yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't really identify. I certainly don't identify as a Republican or as a Democrat. I just, um, but I, I do, I do identify as a libertarian. Like my ideal uh, political candidate in the past 10 or 12 years has been uh, Ron Paul. And he was, he was, he was very, um, he was very much in favor of the decentralization of power, which is the core theme is effectively is that like Washington DC has become almost like the capital city in the hunger games, all the money, all the power has coalesced there. And in my opinion, uh, that is antithetical to humans flourishing, but it's also, it results in, I think a lot of the, political polarization one of the reasons why australians aren't so as aren't so politically polarized is that um in a nation of 330 million people if you feel like this one person trump can either uh do something you like or dislike and then you don't have any kind of say to affect it you become very disenfranchised and you get very upset and in a nation of australia is like 28 30 million people 24 24 million people so the unit of influence that you have as an Australian citizen to influence the federal government on a particular policy is higher than I would have um, as a U.S. citizen, given that there's 330 million of us. So the solution, therefore, is not necessarily to say um, that we need a, like one solution is you could say you need a smaller country um, or you need a country with fewer people. But I don't think that's what it is. What I think it is, is that you just need to distribute the power out from Washington back to the states, back to the local level, so that people feel like they actually have some uh, influence and control over what happens in their backyards, let's say. And I think Australians, by and large, from the couple times that I've been to the country, they feel like their government is quite responsive and that when something is not working, uh, the government takes uh, action to fix it, and that when they petition the government about certain things, the government listens to them and corrects course. And I think that's not the case in the states is that people feel very disenfranchised. They basically be like, the state doesn't listen to what I say. Um, you know, the drug war doesn't go away. The spying doesn't go away. The prison system doesn't get any worse. Like, I mean, sorry, it doesn't get any better. Like the U S locks up so many different people, so, like the number of people that the U S locks up. There's a, there's a litany of things, right? U S sells weapons to places that I don't necessarily agree with. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You can pick a hundred of them. And so there's a real sense of, just being like dis yeah just want to disconnect from the whole thing because it's like you don't feel like you can affect any of it right and so some people just choose, choose to, to totally check out and some people get really upset and they look at you james and they'd be like i want to kill trump that's their um modus mo basically and you m represent that because all of a sudden they've been looking for someone who who like is likes the likes the guy and so they just are like and they want to take it out on you right and because you've seen this in their eyes and i think i think you would agree with me is that you're at a dinner party you're at a conversation where everyone agrees around one particular topic and then you don't want to say anything because you know that if you brought it up and you disagreed you were going to be not necessarily heard and respected and considered for what you said. You're just going to be the lightning rod for all of that energy that's stored up and they just cannot wait to unleash it on you. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's a dangerous situation to be in. So then you wind up just being very quiet at the table or you do kind of self-effacing maneuvers to kind of hide your position. Yeah. You're not. And along. I don't even say that I like Trump. I yeah. say I like the story of Trump. Yeah. I like, I like the, the, the drama of it. And then I get massively accused of, you know, being a Trump fan, which 
I'm a fan of the story of Trump. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Trump, but I'm a fan of the of the the way that he seems to trigger human beings in general because it's a for me like I said before it's just a fascinating study in human behavior. Mm. Mm. You want to keep going on politics? No. <laughs> I don't think so. For all complaints, please email james at jameswanick.com. Right now, do you agree with what Brian just said or what I just said or disagree? Send me a DM at uh, on my Instagram at, at James Swanick or email Brian at... <laughs> Brian at uh, spreadgreatideas.com. Yeah, Bri- Brian was hoping to come out of the gate with lots of listeners for his Spread Great Ideas podcast and now he's just lost about 10,000 of them. Killed, killed 50% of the audience right there. Yeah, um, but there's, there's the, the last thing we'll say on polarization is just that there is... There's also a phenomenon taking place, which is that social media, the rise of Facebook, the rise of Twitter, these things are helping contribute as a, it's so interesting because what was originally believed to be this like force for democratizing information and for giving more people voice, what's happened is that the creators of Facebook in particular uh, have known that if they create an algorithm that feeds you more of what you already interact with, that you will stay on the platform longer and that you will be more engaged and therefore more valuable to them. So they create these echo chambers and these silos. And I don't necessarily think it's malicious. I just think it's a second order problem from social media in general. It's like, we need, we need people to be on the goal for social media. The goal of Facebook is we need people to be on the platform and we need them to interact when they're on there so that we can better serve ads to them. Right? So if I show to, I don't know, James, something about a topic that you are really passionate about and you're liking it and sharing it. I'm going to give you more of that because you're on the platform, you're engaged and it creates an echo chamber. And that's one of the reasons that polarization has happened is that you have people who don't ever really interact like you were doing, you and I are doing right here face to face and can see one another. It's just spread behind a computer screen, right? With zero consequence. With zero consequence. They can trash, burn, nail, yell at people behind a screen, and they don't ever have to deal with the consequence of somebody being like, that's not cool. That's disrespectful. You were rude to me. Whatever, right? Yeah, you're nodding along a lot. It sounds like my um, online trolls, because I run Facebook ads for, to help people quit drinking. Yeah. And I get abused by, not, not, not everyone, by a small section, but the abuse is just, it just always comes. I get, I get accused of being a snake oil salesman that I'm um, charging to help people quit drinking, that I should be doing it for free. This is outrageous. Just go to AA. It's free. Mm. You're, a, you're a disgrace. You're an effing blah, blah, blah. Here we go. Look at this guy. This, I won't say his last name, but this guy. You don't need to pay him. Just don't drink. Well, that's not really he's not really abusing me there, but um, I'm trying to find see if I can find one. I'm just looking in my Facebook comments here. But, um, but anyway, I probably won't be able to find it. It might take me a couple minutes. Yeah, you, but, I mean, I, but I get abused. I get people like... Who sit? Who I've never never met before in my entire life. Yep. Who sit behind a computer? They see one of my Facebook ads. They don't like it. It triggers them, and they just abuse me with the most horrendous language, and like just come at me. Now that's a you know it's a lot, but it's a small section. Most of the most of the comments I get are very supportive, and there's clicks, and and some of the people or many of the people end up being clients of mine, and I help them. I can't take all the credit, but I help them to transform their life by quitting mm-hmm. drinking. Mm-hmm. But back to your point, there are people who are reading this, getting triggered by it, and they're like, reply, you're a scumbag. Mm-hmm. Reply, mm-hmm. you don't know what you're effing talking about. Mm-hmm. Reply, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I used to get kind of upset by it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm I've trained myself to be. Um, um, I don't I don't enjoy it, but I, I uh, impartial is that the word or, yeah. or um, yeah. it doesn't affect me. I just kind of like observe it. I go, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, I try to try to take that that kind of feeling towards it. What do you think of the ethics of blocking people? You mean blocking someone who abuses me on a Facebook post? For the yeah, just like that. Yeah. If someone swears, I block them. Okay. If someone criticizes me, um, but there's no swearing, I, le- I let it. I let it go. Is this public on something that other people can see, or this is just they send you a private uh, Facebook no, no, messenger? No, no, it's public, so other people okay. can see it. Yeah. Okay. So if someone abuse. If someone swears, yeah. in, a, in a in a comment on one of my one of my Facebook ads, because I run Facebook ads to generate clients and customers and, and members. Um, if someone swears, ban. If someone you know doesn't swear but calls me something, you know, yeah, uh, it's you a know, personal attack. Effect, a personal yeah. attack, ban. Yeah. If someone says I disagree or this is not right or blah blah blah, I'll accept it. And sometimes, if someone calls me a snake oil salesman, I have a copy and paste in my my phone notes where I respond because I get called a snake oil salesman all the time. Mm. And um, I get accused of charging for something that people could do for free all the time. And when that happens, I just go into the, the, the notes app in my phone and I type in trolls. <laughs> and look, I'll show you trolls that comes up here. And depending on what the abuse is, like here, this one, this should be free. Can't believe you're charging. Yep. I, I just copy and paste my response, which is, thank you for your feedback. For five years, I've given away 95% of my content free on hundreds of YouTube videos, podcast episodes, TV and radio shows on free coaching calls, on stages, and in newspapers and magazines. For those who have wanted additional and ongoing coaching support, I have offered two paid programs, the 30-Day No Alcohol Challenge and Project 90. If this makes me a scumbag in your eyes, that's fine. So be it. I'm continuing my mission to help 1 million people quit or reduce alcohol. Thank you again for your feedback. So I just copy and paste that. And then, and do you then, hear back from people when you use yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Some people, full credit to some people. Like one woman <laughs> was really mean, and I posted that, and she goes, "Oh, well, maybe I was misinformed. I did. I had a look online, and um, thank you for the, the good work that you're doing for people." Words mm. to that effect. And mm. I was like, "Wow, that's amazing." I actually really respected the fact that yeah, she changed so, her mind. Completely changed her mind. And then there are people like people who actually go to AA who've been in Alcoholics Anonymous for many years. The, uh, they are hilarious. I'll tell you why. Because they are the most abusive. Hmm. They're saying because part of my ad, one of my Facebook ads, is quit drinking without AA. Okay. And I and I'm targeting people who don't want to go to AA. Yeah. Which is about 99 percent of the world's population or people who drink. Right. No one wants to go to AA, but they take it as like a oh my god, you're criticizing AA. Hmm. And so they abuse me, and then. But funnily enough, in this in the in the AA's big book, they have this kind of like Bible. It's called the Big Book. It's been going since the 1930s. Um, one of the one of the um, the things that the Big Book says, and this is on um, page 84, right? Because <laughs> I've I've researched it, right? Page 84 it says, and we we have ceased fighting anything or anyone. On page 80, uh, on page. Um, uh, 84 again love and tolerance of others is our code never talk down to someone from any moral or spiritual hilltop and so I post these things to them and also 
an AA spokesperson said online in a New York Times article about three years ago, said, the AA fellowship does not develop or offer opinions on any other organization, cause, treatment, medications, legislation, housing, sober bars, non-alcoholic beverages, or the alcohol industry. Mm. That was what a spokesperson mm. said. So then I, I post that comment and then I say, curious why you're therefore publicly offering a critical opinion on my program, which helps people reduce or quit drinking. AA's culture seems to promote friendly, supportive, inclusive, open-minded, and positive discussion, yet your message seems to me to be hostile, accusatory, and negative. Mm. So I just, you know, mm. put put that out there. Mm. So I think that ties what you're what you're experiencing with people who are in AA ties in with the polarization which is and I, you and I talked about this at dinner previously which is that like I think Americans in particular are looking for a cause to align themselves with deep down and I and and I think that I want to hear your thoughts on this because I, I think that there's um, uh, that American as a, a like Americans as a culture is um, uh, like deeply disturbed about um, let's call it the death of God like that in a in a post religious world or in a post religious society what fills that vacuum and. Um, I think Americans probably by and large have a more, uh, they're like more keen to, they're, they're more keen to, they're like more religious in a way than maybe Australians are. And, and from what I've yes. seen. Um, and so as a result of that sort of natural tendency to be religious, when you take away the Judeo Christian framework and instead you replace it with AA, you replace it with climate change, you replace it with politics, like people become hyper attached to it. And the way that they talk about it is almost in religious terms. And you and I were at an, another dinner the other night, and a friend of ours was talking about climate change. And the way that he described his belief in climate change, it was a religious conversion. It was like, I saw the light in my early 20s. I started to read about it as if he'd gotten a hold of the good book or you know, whatever the book is called, the big AA, book, the big book in AA. Um, and all of a sudden the world had been revealed to him and he had his mission and what he was aligned for and where he was going. And it was very religious, a lot of the language that he used. And I think if you ask him if he considers himself religious, he'd probably be like, I'm not religious. I don't think that, I think that organized religions of like a, whatever, have something negative to say about it. And then you look at like how he treats climate change it's very religious in a way or how somebody treats uh, politics, whether it's like red team, blue team or whatever, like it's very religious in a way. It's almost like Irish or sorry, like uh, Catholics and Protestants um, in Ireland during the troubles or any other kind of like sectarian group where you basically be like, I just dislike this person because they have this Yankees, Red Sox in a yeah. baseball analogy. Yeah. Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal football club and English soccer, Celtic Rangers. Yeah. 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 That, 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 that tribalism. That's a good word for it. Yeah, tribalism. Yeah. But you, you're saying it's tribalism in the absence of, relig of religious fervor. Yeah, I do think so. Yeah. So religion has fallen by the wayside. And so people still feel a sense to belong to a tribe. And so they, they're looking for a sense of identity. Looking for a sense of identity. Yeah. yeah. I, as you were saying that, I was thinking, I'm, I must be religious too. Like, I'm not religious in the true sense of the, you know, what we know religion to mean but yep. in the analogy that you were putting forward i'm religious about 
the lifestyle that I lead. Mm. Like I'm religious about being an entrepreneur and, and generating my own money and wealth in entrepreneurial endeavors rather than having a boss uh, or, 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 or having a, a job, you know? So I'm very, I'm very black and white on that. Like I, I've had a job and now I've had a, been an entrepreneur and I like to live my life traveling the world and being in different places and having a location independent business. And that type of lifestyle, I am, I feel like quote unquote religious about. Did you read a book that was the, the come to Jesus moment? I mean, Four Hour Work Week by yeah. Tim Ferriss was yeah. the, was the first time that I realized it was possible. And because of that book, I went to Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, in at the end of two thousand and nine. Because Tim Ferriss always spoke about being living in Buenos Aires, and when I was there, I kind of practiced what he spoke about on the uh, in the in the book and tango dancing. I did tango dancing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Took Spanish lessons and everything. And so you know, like you, ten years later, decade later, ten and a bit, half years later. I'm living that lifestyle, so that was the catalyst. Mm. Um, and now I've, I've just, I believe in e-commerce because you've got e-commerce businesses and I have e-commerce businesses, and I will. I don't want to say never, but I can't see a time where I'm going to build a location-based business at all because I'd like to be nomadic and travel and have that that location flexibility. And mm. so I guess you could say I'm religious about that. Mm. Yeah, I think you, you, yeah, I don't know if I would, I don't know if that would be at the, um, because it's like, not, I don't, there's I don't, no I don't, vitriol I, to it. Is that what you yeah, mean? There's like, no, I don't, like, yeah, if it's, if it's, if it's like, if it's, if it's like dogmatic for you, because if somebody is not entrepreneurial, you don't dislike them. Oh, uh, you're right. Okay. You know, like that yeah. could be your code. That could be like what you, okay. you orient yourself, your true north in a way, but it's not, um, You're quite right. It's not. It's not really combative in a nasty, vicious kind of way, or like there's no opposing tribe where you're like fighting about it. It's yeah. like because that this person is morally great. wrong, right? Or that there's something. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, thanks for calling me out. I don't. Yeah. I mean, good, sure. Good yeah. coaching. I should hire you to be one of my coaches. Hey, you want a job? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have enough stuff to do. Thank you. Yeah. Like plus you've, yeah, you you've got a lot of. You've got a lot of access to a lot of like pretty amazing people who can. You were who are you working with? You were working with a uh, a dating coach for um, quite a while. Who you told me a lot about and how it's it's a female, right? It's a woman. Yeah, yeah. and she was working with you on languaging and how you phrase yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lynn Sheridan is her name. She spoke at my um, Maximum Life Summit, which is my my conference, my annual conference in Venice Beach. Um, and, and she's actually speaking at the next one. It's March 26 through 28 at the Hotel Irwin. And putting a little plug in here. Sure. At the Hotel Irwin in Venice Beach. If you'd like to come to the Maximum Life Summit, go to jameswanick.com forward slash live event. We should have put like some music at either side of that to, to make people realize that it was a commercial. Ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Lynn Sheridan, she's been in relationship um, uh, and, and counseling, like coaching people, I mean. For thirty-something years, mm. studied a doctor, John Gut Gottman. Um, John Gottman's probably the world's most famous um, relationship coach. Gottman Institute. He and his wife. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, she she. Um, I hired her at the referral of a friend of mine, a guy called George Bryant, about a year and a half ago. And uh, on average, I probably speak to her once every three or four weeks. And uh, on a one-on-one -on -one call, yeah. And uh, it's been hugely beneficial to me in, in, in how I relate to women, and how I relate to colleagues, and how I relate to family. Even though I still 
want to tell my brother to f off half the, half the time like it it's now not all the time <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so yeah i i'm a massive believer in hiring coaches and working with coaches same thing if you pay a coach you pay attention right yeah because stuff that she's doing teaching me i could have read in a book i could have read in a book or i could have watched on youtube but the mere fact that she's telling me and i'm paying for her time i value it a lot more and so i i, I take the action me too yeah i mean that i i think that that when people critique you for online about that, that people can just quit drinking for mm. free, they don't need to pay for it. There is, and I and I don't know the psychological literature off the top of my head, but there's science behind that. You literally pay attention to what it is that you pay for. There's a there's a phenomenon, and I don't remember what the name of it is, but um, yeah. And I'm also uh, go ahead. I was just gonna say that there's a psychological issue that when one makes an investment, mm -hmm. one is more inclined to keep one's commitment to that investment. Is there a name for that? Like I don't know dun, the name, dun, yeah. But um, but yeah, it's true. You know, if you could have quit drinking, you would have. You haven't, mm. so you can't. So you know what? As soon as you pay, whether it's the sixty-seven dollars or the five thousand dollars, guess what? You're going to quit drinking. My my way has an eighty-seven percent success rate. That's impressive. You know what AA's is? No. Between five and ten percent. Hmm. You know what inpatient treatment centers are? Like passages in Malibu, you know how much they cost. No. First of all, hundred and ten thousand dollars, right, to do it, and they for, have for alcohol. Uh... Yeah, for alcohol and substance abuse and okay. other things like that. But for for alcohol, the passages one for alcohol, right? Hundred and ten thousand dollars for for a thirty forty five day stay somewhere around there. Yeah, and the studies show that it also has less than a five percent success rate. So let me ask you on that: Is that due to the fact that? The people that are attracted to your program are they're more casual drinkers. They don't have they're not mm -hmm. at the point of being like hardcore alcoholics. Correct. Yeah. Problem okay. I call them problem drinkers. That's who's kind of in your sweet spot. Those are who you can help. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is though is that those kind of people who who are not necessarily alcoholics and who are instead problem drinkers. Yeah. They they they're not forced to, but they the only option really available to them is to go to AA because AA is always talking about. You know, AA has been around for seven decades yeah. and, it's, and it has helped tens of millions of people. It is true. But it hasn't helped hundreds of millions of people. That's what I keep trying to get through to people. Like, it's helped tens of millions of people because people have, real, have thought that that's the only way to really break the chain of drinking. But the, the actual statistics are horrendous. Mm. I mean, would you put your life savings on a horse that, were, that was paying 5% um, odds? No. What's five? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. you got five chances out of a hundred that that horse is going to win. You're going to win. Why would you do that? Why do you go there and spend your time? And not only that, bringing this full full circle back to the beginning of the conversation, they tell you that you're a victim. It keeps you stuck in victimhood. It keeps mm. you stuck in being broken. It tells you that you have to surrender to a higher power and that you are powerless over this disease that you have. And I call BS on it for most people. Not for some people, because mm. some people do have a chemical dependency on it. But for most people, I call BS. And what I try to do with my programs is make it fun and aspirational. You're not broken. You're actually a peak performer. You just have this thing, attractively packaged poison, which we call alcohol, in the way of you performing at your peak. And so I help you remove that in a fun, aspirational way versus, oh, my God, I'm broken. I can't believe I'm going to – I have to quit. I have to quit. I must quit. My life is so terrible. 
I don't relate to that at all. Mm. I relate to like, what do we get to create in your life mm. over the next three months by being alcohol free? I'm going to show you how to do it and we're going to do it in a really loving, supportive, fun, challenging kind of way. That's so, the difference. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you why I have an 87% success rate. Part of the, part of the reason is because you pay. You pay for it. Guess what? AA is free and has a 5 to 10% success rate. Mine costs a lot of money if you do the $5,000 program and has an 87% success rate. That's all you got to say, but people don't, people still want to push back on that. So, so have you tried, have you tried a similar methodology with something like smoking or with another, um, it works, it works, another vice that people want to kick? It works for other vices. I, I just happened to quit drinking and that's the topic that I, that I focused on at some point, probably when I, you know, publicly shame myself that if I don't do it, I have to pay something. Mm. I will actually create it as a something to 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 get off smoking or porn or shopping or love addiction, yeah, or anything that people are addicted to. Yeah, just a breaking back. of habits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's one. That's one of the things that I like in Ubud is that it's culturally not really acceptable to drink. Yeah, Most, isn't it? Yeah, that it, that's it's very much, and I think that's part of what you do in Thirty Day No Alcohol Challenge is you create a support group around people, and you basically like there's other people who are doing this um, along with you, and in one sense, and maybe not a great analogy, but in one sense, Ubud is a bit like that because it's as if you say everyone else around you is not drinking; they're drinking green juice, they're drinking coconut water, so you. Um, socially are either well contained to not drink or you're socially ostracized if you do drink. If you show up to an event and you're drunk, people are like, that's not really the the code of ethics for this place, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think that's partially what you're doing with your with your program and your group is that you are creating a... It's community of like-minded people. Yeah. It's funny you were saying here, I was imagining me going out to the, to the local restaurant just up the road from where we are now, um, alchemy and walking in with a cigarette yeah. in my mouth and eating a Kit Kat or eating out a ba- bag of crisps. I mean, I would just be ostracized. Yeah. People would look at me going, what the hell is that guy doing? Yet in other areas of the US, that's completely the norm. Everywhere in the world, you know, completely the norm. So yeah, it's creating a, a supportive community of like-minded people. In fact, Charles C. Duhigg wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Habit. And he said that change occurs amongst other people. So you try to change on your own using brute willpower, setting yourself up for failure. But if you try to change in a group of like-minded people who are encouraging, supporting, and who are like-minded like you in the same journey, that's when change becomes possible. Mm. Yeah. So it's pretty powerful. Um, we've been talking a while. Yeah, maybe we end on that note. That was a powerful one to stop at. Okay. Yeah. I like it. Thank you, Brian. I've I've appreciated having this conversation very much. It's been been a lot of fun. Like I said before, if you'd like to uh, direct some complaints uh, about the Trump (laughs) conversation, please email james at jameswanick.com or send me a DM at at jameswanick or Brian's email address. Brian at at spreadgridideas.com. And you can swear and send us vulgarities. We can't actually block you. Oh, actually, we can block you on Instagram, but if you send me an email... I guess I can block someone on email as well, can't I? Yeah, you can set up a filter afterwards to just delete it. <laughs> but not, yeah, yeah. But the, I don't know if you would get so angry emails as you would publicly. I think there's something about doing it publicly on social media that people 
feel enjoy. like they can abuse you more. Yeah, that's in some in some sense. Maybe I, mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But uh, mm. yeah. So just to close, I think one thing is. James, you, you're just restarting your podcast. I'm getting mine off the ground. Uh, if you do like these podcasts, please go leave us reviews Yeah, yeah, on our uh, respective platforms. So on iTunes or on um, uh, Google, Google Play or uh, Spotify. Uh, I don't know if you can actually leave a review on Spotify. but um, Yeah, to my listeners, um, Brian's podcast is the Spread Great Ideas podcast. So it would mean the world to me if you... Um, found it in iTunes and subscribed. And then whatever you write as a review for this episode on my um, podcast, maybe just copy and paste it and go and put it on, on the same in Brian's as well. That would mean the world to me. Thank you. Thank you. That'd Thank be you so much. Yeah. And uh, yeah, from Ubud, Bali, Indonesia. Let's go and get a packet of Marlboro Lights and some <laughs> some, uh, some Doritos chips and walk into Alchemy now, shall we? With a, with a Make America Great <laughs> on. <laughs> See you later. We'll see you on the next one. <laughs> Hi again, folks. If you enjoyed that show, would you please go leave a review in iTunes or whichever platform you're listening to this podcast on? That would help us immensely. Also, tell your friends, tell your family. If you didn't like the show, if you got feedback about it, please send an email to podcast at spreadgreatideas.com. Would love to hear from you. Again, if you liked it, please help us out by spreading the word. If you didn't like it, let us know what we can do to improve it. Thanks a lot and see you on the next one.